You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, welcome to uh, week six of our class, Heaven and Hell and Everything in Between. We are uh, getting close to the end. And I know that uh, all the difficult questions are being answered, and you're welcome. You're welcome that uh, we're covering... No. (laughs) Just a reminder where we're going to go in the last two classes. Next week, we have Pastor Marty coming in, and she is going to do a, a talk on angels and demons and the spiritual world and spiritual warfare. So... That's going to be uh, quite interesting. I'm looking forward to that. And then the following week, the very last week of the class, will be a panel discussion. A panel to deal with lingering questions. Now, I've asked you to email in uh, questions, and they have been coming. Fast and furious. So I'm compiling a list of questions, but if you have some outstanding questions, or even as it relates to something that we talked about in the weeks past and you want some clarification, don't hesitate to send me an email. My email's on the website, david at cachurch.ca, and just lay out whatever question, lingering questions that you still have. And then on the last week, we'll just tackle those as well as we'll open it up to a general Q&A. Does that sound good? Okay, so with that in mind, let's, uh, let's get started. Let's pray. Jesus, we uh, come before you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. You are our life. We live, we breathe, we have our being because of you. You are our salvation. We have eternal life because of you. And so tonight we pray in all that we do, that we would do it as, a, as an offering of worship to you. So help us to lean in with our minds and our hearts, to be charitable to one another, to reflect your character in our conversations with each other. And we do pray that you would guide what we look at tonight. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight's going to be a lot of fun. Might be, uh, might be a little difficult, but I think it'll be a lot of fun. We're going to be talking about some really, really tough issues. Now, over the weeks, over the weeks, we've explored quite a few things. And along the way, we've discovered that there are many wonderful and horrific dimensions to our conversations about heaven and hell. The hope of eternal life made possible through the cross of Christ, is news that is extraordinarily beautiful. I hope you can see just how beautiful it is. And yet on the other side, what makes at least one perspective of the doctrine of hell so terrifying is its eternality in the sense that there's no turning back. There's no way back. And I think about um, the gates, uh, the sign above the gates in Dante's Inferno, um, the gates into hell. uh, Above the gates, there was written these words. Before me, nothing but eternal things were made, and I endure eternally. Abandon every hope who enter here. 
So many Christian traditions affirm this idea, namely that the eternal destiny, our eternal destiny is sealed at the moment of death. It's what C.S. Lewis says, he, he, he calls people, he says, die before you die, because there is no chance afterwards. So die to Christ before you actually die, because there's no chance afterwards. And so if you die without a saving relationship with God, you are lost forever. The biblical understanding is that the reality of hell, in hell there is no chance of escaping. And even if you're an annihilationist, you would still argue that when you die, then that's it. There is no second chance. And so to avoid this, we have been invited into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, where we confess Jesus as Lord of our lives. But here's some questions that we want to explore tonight. Um, question number one, do we have more chairs? <laughs> there are some chairs there and there are some chairs there. Oh, thanks, Timothy. <laughs> and that's the easy question. Here's some other questions that we're going to be exploring tonight. Can you get to heaven without believing in Jesus? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> And if you can't, if you can't, then what do you do with the good person who's never heard about Jesus? What about Bob's grandma, Agnes? I mean, she was a great person. She was such a nice lady. But she never really heard about the gospel. So is it fair that she is consigned to hell? And here's another question. Can you get to heaven if you kind of, sort of, believe in Jesus? <laughs> How clear do you need to be in your mind about who Jesus is in order to make the cutoff? Aren't these fun questions? This is just the beginning. Now let me give you a fair warning tonight. <laughs> you may, there is a chance, you may leave here tonight with more questions than when, you, than when you came in. But that seems to be a pattern. But one of the things that hopefully will come out of this class is that you're, you're being taught to think about things that maybe you hadn't thought of before and implications to things that you believe and the directions that these go in that maybe you hadn't thought of before. So I think there will be some more Hydra questions that will be popping up, but we'll see. I'd like to look just for a moment to frame our time uh, with a passage and then a thought experiment. Okay, so here's a passage. Romans chapter 10 is a very well-known passage for, especially if you went to Missions Fest last weekend. Um, Paul writes these words. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But if they have not all obeyed the gospel, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Okay. It's a very well-known passage, and it seems to be quite clear in terms of what we're looking at tonight. But I want to give you a thought experiment. Here's a thought experiment, and an, imagine, an exercise of imagination. Let's say there were two brothers, twin brothers, grew up together, wore the same shirts, listened to the same music, and did everything together. They're inseparable. And... Uh, they, for the most part, again, they live identical lives, but on their 21st birthday, their parents bought them a car. They said, hey, happy birthday to both of you. We bought you a car that you can share. And so they take the car and they celebrate. And they take it for a spin. And they get into an accident where one of the brothers is tragically killed while the other one survives. I just want to. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Jack, are you still there? Uh oh. <laughs> I may have, hang on. I may have accidentally turned people off. <laughs> it looks frozen, doesn't it? Okay, let me think. Uh, oh, yeah, that, <laughs> that tells me I'm in trouble. Yeah, okay. No, it's, it's, it, it hopefully will come back again. Hang on. Ah. This meeting, okay, got it. <laughs> sorry, is everybody still there? <laughs> Jack, can you hear me? Yeah, you're okay. Sorry, guys. I, I did something catch. that I should not have done. Okay. Um, okay. As I was saying, <laughs> and it was such a, a cliffhanger. So there's these uh, two brothers, they take the car for a spin and they get into a car accident. One of them gets badly injured but survives, and the other one dies. The one who is badly injured um, looks at his life. He knows that his brother died, and that could have happened to him. And so, as a result, he turns to Jesus, and he gives his life to Jesus. And he spends the rest of his life following the ways of Jesus. But his brother, what happened to his brother? Traditional theology would tell us that he is facing eternal damnation. But what if he had survived? Would he not also have repented if he had lived? What if God knew that the one brother who died would have repented if he had lived? Would he be given another chance after death 
Why or why not? So here's a question that just to get us thinking around the table. And as again, and I know I'm saying this to, to um, I'm preaching to the choir because I'm saying in your conversations, be charitable. I have to say this since the beginning of this class, all your conversations, and I, I make my way around, um, have been very charitable. And you've been very uh, caring to one another as you've been having these conversations. So here's a conversation. Here's a discussion. Do you think people will be given another chance to receive Jesus after they die? Why or why not? And what scripture would you draw from to support your case? So I'm going to leave you with that fun question around your tables or online. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's let's wrap up our conversation for now. We have we have multiple opportunities to have lively conversations tonight. Uh, I only made it around to half of you, and many of the themes in the conversations are really good themes, and these are themes that we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, what we're going to do tonight, uh, we're gonna like, is twofold. One, we're going to try to frame an answer for the question we asked, you know, a couple weeks ago. How are we saved? And secondly, we're going to look at the scope of who is saved, and whether or not there may be another chance after we die. I was surprised this week that Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. God forbid that I should limit the time of acquiring faith to the present life. In the depths of the divine mercy, there may be opportunity to win it in the future. I was shocked. I had never, I didn't know that about Luther. So we're going to touch on some of the questions that have been brought up along the way, especially the question of what happens to those who have never heard the gospel. So we're going to be kind to each other as we dive into this. Now we know, according to the gospel, according to scripture, that we are saved by grace through faith. Amen? Amen. All the reformed Protestant, we, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. Right? Unless any man should boast, not by the sacraments. Right? That papist doctrine. No. <laughs> We know that the Holy Spirit is drawing people to Jesus, and that the church is a normal means by which we are saved, by which Jesus is worshipped, and by which we share fellowship, and by which we do mission. Right? Okay. So, let's ask the question, though. What about those who have never heard the gospel? Now, don't look at your notes. Look at me for a second. Look. Look at my eyes. Okay, when I say, and that includes you guys online, look in my eyes, or look at the camera. Um, when I say, what about those who have never heard? Who am I talking about? Babies. Okay, babies. Good. What else? Unreached people. Okay, expand that. I always like when, yeah, part, parts of India, yeah, yeah. Though I think there's still more Christians in India than there are in Canada, probably, altogether. 
Well, yeah. Yeah, well, well, yeah, there is that, there is that area, yeah. But it was Thomas that brought the, uh, the gospel to, uh, to India. Um, <laughs> again, it's funny, we always say the jungles in Africa, but again, there are, more even, there are more evangelicals in Uganda than Europe and North America combined. So what we're talking about is we're talking, how can I put it, Burke Mountain? Uh, people who have never heard, uh, you know, Westwood Plateau, uh, those unreached areas, uh, downtown Vancouver, Vancouver, what, what was the percentage of Vancouverites that go to church? Do you know, less than 3%, less than 3%. So there's in, in villages in Africa, it's more than 3%. So the people that are the unreached people are those in downtown Vancouver. Okay. It's just, it's just perspective on that one. Right? So, but we're talking about people who have not heard. Okay. Who else? Ah, yes, people who came before Jesus. Good, good. Ah, what about those who are mentally disabled and are incapable of understanding the gospel? Good question. What else? That's right. So kids who grew up in an atheist home where there's a hostility towards the gospel. What about those who have a distorted view of Jesus because they had a very abusive father? Or what about children that went through residential school experiences and their experience of the church was really bad, and so they have a distorted understanding of the gospel? Um, what about, um, yeah, those who are abused in the churches? Um, yeah, or, okay, and what about the Orthodox Jew? What about, um, what about those who love Jesus, but they get Jesus wrong? Like a, a JW, or a Mormon, or uh, someone who's a, who's a oneness theology, which is, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is all the expression of Jesus. Um, what about if their theology is wonky about Jesus, but they love Jesus? <laughs> so, I mean, it's so uh, when I say, what about those who've never heard? It's a pretty big category, isn't it? So we have to ask the, the question, how, you know, what about these people? So Old Testament believers, um, you know, we, we say, okay, maybe Abraham, Moses, and Elijah are, are saved by faith. I mean, we see Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration, okay. But what about the rank and file Israelites throughout the B.C. days, how are they saved? Through, through the sacrificial system. If they're in exile, how are they saved? Following the law, belief in God. Okay, good, good. Um, those outside the Abrahamic faith, like Enoch, Melchizedek, how are they saved? Yeah, what about people who lived before Jesus or after Jesus who are really good people? I mean, what do you do with Socrates, right? And then what kind of response, what kind of response to Jesus is enough? What kind of response to Jesus is salvific, would save you? And where's the cutoff line? Maybe. Are they repentant? Maybe, yeah. 
faith, yeah? So some people, yeah, what about people like Gandhi, who love the, the teachings of Jesus, but were ostracized by Christians due to discrimination? That's good. Yeah, okay, good. You guys are, yeah. Aren't these interesting questions? Yeah. So many people would say, okay, well, we might have an answer. Hang on, Al, we're getting there. Um, many people would say that belief in Jesus is required. But then what kind of belief? Because we know the demons believed in Jesus. Is it just a correct belief? Or is there something more? Now, these are such fun questions. I'm going to give you three minutes to talk about them. You choose whichever one you like and see what kind of answer you come up with. You can choose whatever category of people that we, we laid out, whether it be babies or the unrepentant or those who've never heard, those on Burke Mountain, whatever you want to say. Um, try to answer the question, how are they saved? How do people who have never heard, how are they saved? Or are they saved? Okay. Here we go. Okay, uh, we are going to try to address these questions. Okay, so I'm not just going to leave you hanging. I'm going to lay out uh, two approaches to these questions. Two approaches to answering these questions. And as we were talking, uh, as I was making around the, uh, around the tables, um, see, these are really important questions because these are questions that people will ask you. And unless you think about it carefully, you know, how are you going to answer your neighbor when they present you with some of these questions? Because these are really, these are the questions that a lot of people think about. So, um, I think there are two main approaches that we can take to this. The two approaches are called uh, the restrictivist approach and the inclusivist approach. Uh, don't read too much into those words. One's not necessarily negative and not, and the other one's not all, you know, embracing or whatever. It's just these, these, both these approaches can be found within the overall umbrella of Orthodox Christianity. Now, those who would come from different, who would be a restrictivist would probably have a hard time with an inclusivist and vice versa, but that's okay. Uh, there are sharp uh, disagreements among them, but let's look at them. First, let's begin with restrictivist. Again, the restrictivist is not a, uh, it's not a negative term, but it's simply expressing that hearing about and responding with faith in Jesus is required for anyone to be saved. That's what a restrictivist would argue. They would say there's some key verses that point this out. You know, for example, um, Jesus saying, I am the truth, the life, and the way right? Um, you can only come to the Father uh, through me. Uh, you would have uh, another passage that would be found in, um, in the book of uh, Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which uh, given among men by which uh, we must be saved. This Jesus is the one through whom we are saved. And then you have that passage that I read to you in Romans 10, and there are other passages that would reiterate this idea. And so the understanding is this, reception of the gospel of Jesus Christ, understanding the gospel, responding in faith, these are all required for you and I to be born again. So salvation 
is restricted to those who understand and properly receive and respond to the gospel to the degree that they can. And so this would get to the point, you know, somebody maybe who's not as educated or maybe has a, a, um, uh, are, are mentally incapacitated, those things would all be taken into consideration. But it is responding to Jesus and the gospel of Jesus that is required for one to be saved. And again, the, uh, the Romans 10 is, uh, is an important passage on that. But it's actually, the Romans 10 passage is, is not as much, is, it may not be the slam dunk that we think it is, though. Because there's a line in this. If you read Paul's argument carefully in Romans 10, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but there's a quote that Paul uh, draws from in, in Romans 10, and the quote is from which Old Testament book, do you know? Uh, from Joel. He's, he's, he's quoting from Joel. And, and, um, and the quote is this, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But that is referring to Yahweh, to God. It's not referring to Jesus because it's the Old Testament. And so Paul may be saying that people need to hear the good news about God, that there is a God, that God loves them, and that you need to put their trust in him. And this God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. So if you confess Jesus, then that's great. But the word of salvation had been preached beforehand, even in the Old Testament. And Paul is condemning Israel for not receiving this beforehand by believing in Yahweh and his promises. So again, the, the text is, is maybe not as, 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 as clear as, as we may um, think it is. I think Paul might be working back and forth between trusting in Jesus, but also trusting in God. We'll come back to this theme. But the view of the restrictivist is this. One is only saved in and through hearing and responding to Jesus Christ. There's no other way that we can be saved. Okay? Is that clear on that? Okay. The other perspective is the inclusivist perspective. Again, it's an orthodox view, but it believes that faith in God is required to be saved. And so understanding and receiving God's grace is required. Uh, this is expressed in, in, in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Um, and, and the words, let's, let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 6, just very quickly. Does somebody have it? Yeah, so Hebrews, Hebrews 11, verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now the context of this is the context of Abel and Enoch. Okay? So they had faith in God. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they believed in him, they trusted in him, they trusted in his graciousness, they trusted that he was kind and benevolent and had the power to save. We also read a very intriguing passage, and this is what inclusivists would point to, and that passage is found in Luke chapter 18. And it's a parable of, uh, of Jesus. And so Luke chapter 18, we come across this parable in verse 9. 
Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. He prayed this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now listen to what Jesus says. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the language he uses is interesting language. He was justified. Why was he justified? Well, he knew he was a sinner, and he knew he didn't measure up to God's standard, and he knew that he needed God's mercy. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that one is saved when one realizes that you don't measure up and that you're in need of God's mercy? Let's leave that open. So let's look at the implications of these two approaches, the restrictivist and the inclusivist, and we'll um, apply these questions that we've been asking to each perspective, okay? So what is the restrictivist answer to the pressing questions we've been looking at? What about those in the Old Testament who've never heard the gospel? A restrictivist answer, what would be some of the possible answers? Um, what happens to them? Well, they never turn to Jesus. Maybe they end up in some kind of holding place. <laughs> so this is where, you know, um, uh, you know, the ideas of, uh, we talked about this before, of, of limbo or Abraham's bosom or Sheol or Hades or paradise or some kind of intermediate state is required where they are evangelized. And when, if they're evangelized and, and, and uh, Jesus is presented to them, they'll be like, of course, Jesus, of course, this all makes sense. And they would turn to him. Were they evangelized after their deaths? Is that what 1 Peter chapter 3 is saying? Well, there's lots of controversy about that one, but that's a passage to look at on your own. The other idea in this is, is the idea that, you know, because of, the, and this is what a restrictivist would say, is because of the cross of Christ, the work of the cross of Christ, you need to know, extends forward and backwards in time. It's like when you take a pebble in a very still lake and you drop it and the ripples extend outwards. In the same way, the key event, the crux of all human history, the cross, its salvific effect extends forward in time and backwards in time. And so Old Testament believers would be covered by the work of the cross. That's an argument that I've also heard. What about those who've never heard of the gospel? Well, one of the way the restrictivists have dealt with the many, many people who have not heard of the gospel, and we've talked about that, right, um, is to say this. Well, you know what? In God's foreknowledge, he knew that these people would not have responded positively to Jesus, even if they had an opportunity to hear of him. And so that's why the gospel never made it to Burke Mountain, the people there, sorry, anybody from Burke Mountain, sorry, I should pick a different place. Um, 
I was going to say Syria. I won't say Syria. Um, some other place. Okay. The people there, they were going to go to hell anyway. And so the brother who died in the car crash, turns out he would never have turned to Jesus. And this approach maintains God's goodness and places a problem on the decisions that people would have made or would not have made. Now, one of the implications is there's a lot of people still ending up in hell. Or, or a, a more Calvinist approach, and this came up over at that table, is the idea that those who have not heard the gospel are clearly not part of God's elect chosen ones. And therefore, like all of humanity, except the elect, those who are chosen by God for salvation, they are deserving of hell because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all deserving of hell. And the fact that God rescues anybody is a picture of God's amazing grace. That would be a Calvinist approach to this answer. Or we keep coming back to post-mortem evangelism. I hope you notice that this, this keeps coming up as the kind of the, the logical suggestion, right? After one dies, they will encounter Jesus and will either accept him or reject him. This came up at this table. This at least makes things a little more level that everybody gets a chance to hear about Jesus and respond to the good news one way or the other. And we're going to come back to that idea. What about those who are presented a distorted gospel? Two possibilities. One, they were never going to be saved anyways. They weren't elect or they weren't going to accept the gospel, even if they heard it and they understood it. Or, guess what we have? Post-mortem evangelism. <laughs> and so it keeps showing up. It keeps showing up over and over again. And... Um, and this idea that, that God will do what he wants to do without our help actually prevented missions in the Protestant tradition for a long time. In the 18th century, okay, I'm just going to get history geeky for you for a moment, but in the 18th century, in the early 18th century, there were some people saying, you know what, we should go throughout the world and share the gospel. This was a novel idea for Protestants. It was just a novel idea. And they said, we should share the gospel around the world. But you had a lot of Calvinists saying, what's the point? If, if, if the person is elect, if God has chosen them, they'll figure it out. They'll come to faith. If God hasn't chosen them, what's the point of sharing the gospel with them? And so there's a story, and this is just a fun story. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, suggested in a, in, in a meeting at a church he says, I think we should share the gospel around the world. And this old pastor stood up. And he looked at William Carey, and do you know what he said? He said, sit down, young man. If God is going to convert the heathen, he can do it without your help or mine. Don't be going off sharing the gospel. It's just going to mess everything up. In fact, there are even missionary hymns in the 18th century saying, don't go to the ends of the earth because you'll just mess people up. Can you believe that? This is a, this is a time period of what is known as hyper-Calvinism, which is Calvinists who have had a little too much coffee. Um, really, really, really hyper-Calvinists. But if... 
If we end up with this idea of post-mortem evangelism, after you die, you get a second chance. That raises a very awkward question. Why would I want to bust my butt and haul my family to the other side of the world, to the far reaches of the world, if they can come to faith in an easier way? Why would I go? Why would I move to be a missionary if they're just going to get a second chance? So the restrictivist view of modern missions is that people need to be clear on the whole gospel in order to be saved. If they've never heard of Jesus, then they're in eternal peril. And that's been the motor behind our denomination, our particular denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, for over 100 years. The Christian Missionary Alliance was founded by A.B. Simpson with two goals, the deeper life, the deeper spiritual life, and to reach the world for Jesus. And so that's why we're to go into all the nations and proclaim Jesus' name. Okay, so how would an inclusivist answer these pressing questions? What about the Old Testament believers? Well, an inclusivist would say you don't have to you don't have to have post-mortem evangelism or anything like that. And inclusive of this, say, in the Old Testament, if they believed in God, and they believed in God's mercy, and they trusted in God, then that was enough. That's all you need. They've, God has revealed himself as Yahweh. He's true, revealed himself as a true God. They don't need to have some vision of Jesus. The cross doesn't need to work backwards in time. In fact, when they die and they encounter Jesus... They'll just say, of course, of course. This all makes sense. It all being prepared in the Old Testament, but of course, Jesus. And so the key question is whether or not they were trusting in God by putting their faith in Yahweh and living the way he wanted them to live. That's, that's what matters. And for the inclusivists, what about those who have never heard of the gospel? Well, the inclusivists would say they are saved through faith in the one true God as he has revealed himself to them. And we talked about this at this table just about um, in, 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 in many cultures and various times throughout history, various cultures, they all have a sense, they all have a sensus divinitatis, a sense of God, Right? That this is, this is tied to Romans 1, that we all have a sense that God exists. And so in, 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 in various cultures and various times throughout history, just a sense of God's existence and the sense that I don't measure up and I need God's mercy, that would be enough. And you could make an argument and you can say, well, what about Abel? I mean, how sophisticated was Abel's theology? But he, you know, he was saved. And so the, 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 the key here is responding to God and the revelation of himself in creation. If I say, look, I don't measure up to God's standards, that there's something wrong in my heart, that I need God's mercy, an inclusivist would say, that is enough. Or postmodern evangelism. And so a person who, who would be in this category, when they die, if they're introduced to Jesus... They wouldn't be like, oh, they'd be like, yes. 
My heart had always been longing for you. I didn't have a name. I didn't know who you were, but now I see who you are. Of course, that's what my heart was longing for all along. What about those who are presented a distorted or tainted picture of Jesus? Well, again, we need to ask the question, how much faith do we, are, is required for us to be saved? What does Jesus say? How much faith is required? Yeah, not, not, a, not a lot. It's pretty small, right? Faith is small as a mustard seed. So what about those in other religions? Can they be saved? An inclusivist would say, yes, but... <laughs> yes, but we have to be clear on this one. Uh, I like what C.S. Lewis says. This is a great quote. You probably heard it before. Lewis says, if you're a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you're an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all religions uh, of the world is that one huge mistake. If you're a Christian, you're free to think that all these religions, even the queerest ones, the strangest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. When I was an atheist, I had to try to persuade myself that most of the human race have always been wrong about the question that mattered to them most. When I became a Christian, I was able to take a more liberal view. But of course, being a Christian does mean thinking that where Christianity differs from other religions, Christianity is right and they are wrong. As in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to a sum and all the other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than the others. I, I, I love that quote. And so I've, and you guys know the stories. I know um, just from working with, with Muslims in the Middle East, that when a Muslim comes to Christ, typically th their self-understanding is not, I've converted to something new. It's more, I've had a distorted understanding of who God is. And now I see who Jesus is. Jesus was in our, he is in our Quran. He is in our scriptures, but I had a distorted view of Jesus. Now I see Jesus clearly, and yes, I have turned to Jesus. And in fact, thanks be to Jesus, he revealed himself to me in a dream, which often happens. And so for, for someone who's, who's Muslim, um, when they come to faith, again, they, they come to faith because they, they realize they've had a distorted theology. Historically, you can even make a case. I'm not going to go into this, but historically, you could even make a case because you know, if you follow the story of the rise of Islam, Islam takes off in areas where Christianity was the weakest, especially in the areas of Christology. Wherever their Christology was insufficient or defective, that's where Islam first took root. And there are some people who say Islam in some ways is... Rather than being seen as a different religion, it can be seen as a Christian heresy. It's a heresy. And so when a person comes to faith from Islam, it's more like, yeah, I had God wrong, and I had Jesus wrong, and now I see who he truly is. Same with a, a Jewish person. Um, someone who is Jewish, they would say, yeah, I, I obviously got the Messiah wrong. Jesus is Messiah, and my understanding of God is triune. I miss that. Okay. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-expected one. Same in other religions. In, in most religions, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. 
in most religions, even religions that are atheistic. Now, what religions are atheistic? Buddhism, Hinduism. They're atheistic in the sense they don't believe in a personal God. They believe in nirvana or Brahman, like the, the, the great oneness of it all. But in both faiths, in Buddhism and Hinduism, over the years, what do they introduce? Personal gods. Because I think there's something in the heart that, that knows that God is personal. It's really an interesting story of, of the religions. But a lot of religions believe in God, and that God is personal, that God is supreme, that God creates, that God forgives. And so, if somebody is rightly oriented towards Jesus, they will not reject Jesus. And so the inclusivist view is that if you believe in God, and if you believe that God exists and that you don't measure up, and that you need God's mercy, then that is salvific, that can save you. And so then the big question is, is according to the inclusivist view, are there people outside the Christian church who are saved? And they would say, yes. But you need to be careful here. They are not saved by being a good Buddhist. They are not saved by being a faithful Muslim. They are not, faith, they are not saved by being a, a, a consistent Hindu. That's, that's not what saves them. Getting one's religion right, that's, that's, that's not the point. What, what matters the most is, is whether or not they have a belief in, in God, not in their God, but in God, that there is God and that they don't measure up and they need his mercy. God, our creator, God who has mercy upon us. Now, I'm just presenting this perspective, okay? These, this is the second perspective. It's not that I necessarily agree with it, okay? I'm just laying this out. So, the inclusivist view is that we are saved by grace through faith, not by religion. So, Christianity won't even save us. Jesus saves. The end of the day is Jesus says, Jesus will save. <laughs> He's the one who saves. Um, not how well one conforms to Islam, or not even how well one conforms to Christian religion, because the Christian religion doesn't save, Jesus saves. Hope you can see that distinction. And so according to the inclusivist view, there are people in the Christian church <laughs> who never really knew Jesus. And Jesus says that. He goes, the people who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, what will I say? I never knew you. Never knew you, right? And it's not a matter of being sincere. Oh, you know, I know somebody who's a very sincere Buddhist. That doesn't matter. You can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. You know, people who got on the airplanes on 9-11 were sincere in their desire to land safely. It didn't work out. So sincerity, you can be a sincere Nazi, and it's not going to help you at all. You're still in trouble. So there must be a sincere faith in the one true God and a recognition that we are in desperate need for God's mercy. 
And what this means is that even if your theology is terrible, but if you trust in God, you may be saved. You may not know Jesus, but when you die and you're confronted with Jesus, you'd be like, you're the one my heart was yearning for all this time. Now, there's a big objection here. Well, if this is the case, then we may as well pack up our missionaries. What's the point of missions? Why bother sharing the gospel? You know, if they can come, if they can be saved without the gospel, why bother sharing? What's the purpose of missions? I'm going to have you guys talk about that. I think that's a great question. What's the point of missions? If, if all this is true, what is the point of missions? Just take a moment to talk among yourselves and see what you come up with. So why bother evangelizing if within various religions a person could have a sensus divinitatis, a sense of God, a sense of their own unworthiness, and that sense of faith in God would be salvific? Then why have missions? Well, one argument, one thing you could say is that to be saved by believing in God is one thing, but to experience life in Christ is something way, way better. Because in Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus and when, when, when the Holy Spirit comes within us, we flourish as human beings. We become the people that we are created and redeemed to be, and our lives... Um, will be full, will be full in the way they're supposed to be. So in this case, like for someone who just kind of believes in God and at the end they see Jesus be like, wow, that's great. They've missed out on their whole life of growing and knowing with Jesus, uh, knowing Jesus. And so to preach Jesus to the world, this would be an inclusivist answer, to preach Jesus to the world is a beautiful thing because to know Jesus and to be known by Jesus is awesome. That's how we live. That's how we flourish. And so it's way better than just simply getting in by the skin of your teeth. That would be, that would, that would be the response. David? Yes? Why we should be missionaries? I think that the Holy Spirit calls us to do that. We should be missionaries because the Holy Spirit calls us to do this. And Scripture teaches us. Right, because the Holy Spirit calls them. Okay, good, good. The Great Commission, exactly. Okay. <laughs> now, behind all that we've been saying, and I've heard this at a few of your tables, is this idea, okay, behind, behind much of what we're saying tonight is this idea. Most of human history... Most human beings have never heard of Jesus. Throughout most of human history. Never heard, even after, even after, even AD, most human beings had not heard of Jesus. And so part of what we're thinking about comes out of this desire for there not to be this kind of Niagara Falls of souls going into hell. 
And also this idea that, you know what? God really, I mean, if he's good and an awesome God, should he not give everybody an opportunity to say yes or no to him? Should there not be a level playing field where each person has an opportunity to respond to God in a soul-saving way. That's part of the thinking behind it. Now, a restrictivist would say, no, no. There is no level playing field. Why? Who are you to demand one? All have sinned. All have rebelled against, uh, against God. There's no repentance on the other side of the grave. Once you die, that's it. The fact that God saves anyone is a picture of God's amazing grace. I have this uh, bookmark with a quote by Jonathan Edwards, who's a, a strong Calvinist. He says, You contribute nothing to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Yeah, that gives you an idea. Okay? So, a restrictivist would say there's no post-mortem evangelism, typically. Um, this would trivialize your life. You need to make choices now, and the choice you make matters. An inclusivist view would say, no, um, you need to have at least an opportunity to say no to Jesus. You need to have freedom to say no. And so... There's this viewpoint, it's called accessibilism, that says this, is that God's saving grace is universally available so that at least on one occasion in a person's life, one is enabled to respond to God's self-revelation with a faith response that is acceptable to God as a means of justification. So everybody, every human being, doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in, every human being at some point, at least at one point, will have to respond to God's revelation of himself to them. And that way, everybody has the same opportunity. So which religion sort of this is coming from a Christian perspective. Yeah, so the restrictivist and the inclusivist is, is, is I'm talking from a Christian perspective. Um, so when a person dies and they meet Jesus, they will respond to him in a way consistent with how they responded to God in their lifetime. If they said yes to God in their lifetime, when they see Jesus, be like, yep, this is exactly what I was presented with. I'm, I'm so glad to see you. Now, there's two ways that this has been played out. One is this idea that God does all the work. He does all the work to draw you to himself. And that is, um, Petro talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about um, um, monergerism. And it's the idea that God does all the heavy work to bring everybody to the point of salvation. He will reveal himself to every human being at some point, in some way, and you'll have to... And in fact, a, a, a monergerist, some of them would say, and God will give you even the, the faith to respond to him. He'll do everything to draw you to himself. He'll make his, his grace so irresistible that you cannot resist.
And so you can see it would lead to a certain form of universalism. You know, God wants everybody to be saved, gives everybody an opportunity to respond to him. He's so good, he's so compelling, that of course people are going to say yes. So at some point, if not now, after you die, people are going to say yes to Jesus, yes to God, and they will make it into the kingdom. The Calvinists, Calvin said God does all the heavy lifting, but he also says that most people are predestined for hell, just a few are predestined for eternal life. He says it's a horrible doctrine, but it's true. <laughs> and so if you're a Calvinist, you follow uh, TULIP. What is TULIP? Does anybody know what TULIP means? The acronym TULIP? T, total depravity. Every person is soaked in sin. You, unconditional election, that God chooses who will be saved. L, limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for humanity, he died for you. I, irresistible grace. When God's grace comes to us, you cannot resist it. P, perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. That's what a Calvinist would argue. There you go. You remember, tulip. A synergist would say, no. God draws us, but we also have to say yes, and some of us will say no. And if we say no, then we, 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 we pay the consequences to that. Now, as you can imagine, there are some serious problems to some of the things that we've been talking about. The idea that... that, that God would reveal himself, and it's irresistible, and of course you're going to say yes. That overrides what? Our free will, and we talked about that. This idea, I mean, the idea, the universalist idea is like God is so winsome, he'll give everybody a chance, and he wants everybody to say yes, if not now, after you die, and everybody will say yes, there'll be one over. Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins. Um, but what that does, that means we have no free will. Because we do know some people would have hardness of heart and say, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I am not going to bow my knee. I am not going to bow my knee. Story goes to Stalin on his deathbed. Stalin, Joseph Stalin, on his deathbed, interesting, a strong atheist, calls an um, Orthodox priest to be at his bedside. But the story goes, this is Stalin, just before he dies, opens up his eyes, and he sits up, and he shakes his fist at heaven, and then dies. Right to the very end. And so that's a problem. Will this override our free will? The other problem is that this picture that, you know, everything will be reconciled to God in the very end because God will make all things possible that everybody will have a chance and say yes to his love and to his, his, uh, his grace. But the problem is, is not everyone's going to be reconciled to God. Are fallen angels going to be reconciled to God? I don't think so. Is Satan going to be reconciled to God? I don't think so. Yes. Um, what about Revelation chapter 20? Where we, we read that human beings whose names are not in the book of life, they're cast into the same lake of fire that death and Hades is being thrown into. So the possibilities of a comeback seem a little grim. The other thing is just the teaching of Scripture. How many, how many times in Scripture do we come across Jesus' teaching saying, 
There's two ways. There's a, there's a narrow gate or a broad way. You got the wheat and the tares, right? To the right or to the left. You got the sheep and the goats. So much of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, says this, choose life. Do not choose the way of death. And they wouldn't say that unless there is a choice to actually choose the way of death or choose the way of life. And so what you do see in Scripture, I think, is, is you do see this picture of judgment. It's there. And so I, 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 we come back to the whole universalist um, idea. I just don't think there's scriptural support for it at all. And you do get the left or the right in this either-or choice. And even the idea that, you know what, if you were exposed to the love of God, he would win you over. Is that what we see in Scripture? You saw people exposed to, 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 to God's own son. How did that go over? They nailed him to a cross. You saw the Israelites every morning, every day they saw a pillar of cloud, every night, pillar of fire. And the moment something went wrong, let's go back to Egypt. Exposure, exposure does not mean you're going to give your allegiance to it, right? I mean, I know that people who grew up here, who are a little bit older, who grew up here, and the only hockey they could watch was the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Vancouver Canucks was never on TV. But that exposure, I don't think, took. <laughs> I don't think it won, it won people over. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> God's greatest exposure to us of himself was in Jesus, the Son of God. And he was nailed to a cross. Okay, so let me wrap things up. And I can. We got eight minutes. I can do this. Okay, here we go. You ready? Okay, here's some thoughts. What do we do with what we looked at tonight? Can we arrive at anything clear and definite? <laughs> I think we can. Because you know what? One of the issues that we're dealing with tonight, Jesus actually addresses. Do you know that? And one of the issues is a question of how many people are saved? How many people are saved? What, what are the population statistics of heaven? How many people are in heaven? How many people are in hell? Well, that is actually a question that somebody asked Jesus. They approached Jesus in Luke chapter 13. Someone said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's the question. How many people? How many people are going to be saved? And what does Jesus respond? Strive to enter by the narrow door. Jesus ignores the question. But he makes it crystal clear that he is the door through which we are to strive to enter in. And the right answer to the question about populations of heaven and hell seems to be this. None of your business. We not only do not know, but really it's not our business to know. And so if you're a medievalist, you would think that hell has got a huge population. If you're a modernist, you'd think hell is empty. 
Jesus says, it's not ours to speculate. Remember at the very end of John's gospel, and uh, Jesus says to Peter, come follow me. And John, uh, Peter looks at John, and what does he say? Yo, well, what about him? And what does Jesus say? None of your business. Follow me. Lewis picks this up in the Chronicles of Narnia, because Aslan, who's the Christ figure, over and over, people say, so if I did this, would this have happened? Or if she had done this? Aslan said, he goes, I only tell your own story. I tell nobody's story but their own. And I think the same applies to you and me. What, when somebody comes up to me, oh, David, David, well, what about those who've never heard? Well, I could lay out the restrictivist view, the inclusivist view. We could talk about those sorts of things. But I'll usually pause and I'll just say, you've heard. You know the gospel. You have to know the gospel in order to ask this question. So let's leave that later. How are you going to respond? Right? I mean, it's a great question. We can talk about restrictivists, inclusivists. We can talk about all these things. But you know the gospel. How are you going to respond? Don't be giving the smoke screen to try to avoid the fact that you need to respond. You know how many times people have asked me that question? And then that's exactly, I say, that's a great question. But how about you? We may not know who goes where, B.C. or A.D., but we do know for sure how one enters into eternal life. And that is through the one who says, I am the way. And so we come back to the question, are there anonymous Christians? Are those who end up in the book of life who don't confess Jesus explicitly? The answer is, we actually don't know. What we've been doing tonight is we've been thinking theologically, which is okay. We've been thinking rationally, logically. We've been looking at some scriptures that are a little, there's mysterious. And that's okay. And I think that's the point of this class. But we really don't know. So the question is how? How are people saved? And some people are asking, is there a side road around Jesus? And my answer always is, why would you want to take a side road around the one who says, I am life? Like, what are you hoping to gain by avoiding the author of love and the author of life? Like, what are you looking for? Plus, there doesn't seem to be a side door. Jesus is a narrow way. He's the truth, the life, and the way. And if this is offensive, I always say, well, take it up with Jesus. And one of the things that I end up doing is I end up doing a lot of funerals. And I do funerals for Christians, and I do funerals for non-Christians. And I do get asked that question. Is Aunt Sally in heaven? And my response to them is this. God is not a system. He's not a system. So I, I'm not going to say. I, I would never say a person is not in the presence of Jesus. I would say clearly a person is in the presence of Jesus if, they've, if, if I knew they were a Christian, right? And I always say, I don't know what's going through a person's mind before they die. We don't know. 
But we know that we're not saved by religion, but by the one who is good and just and will not leave the guilty unpunished, but will also do what is right. And so I always pray, whenever I'm doing a funeral, I always say, look, in my prayer I say, may this encounter with death, this encounter of death with a loved one, may it prepare our hearts for eternal life with Jesus Christ, that comes through Jesus Christ alone. We don't know what happened to Aunt Sally. We know God is good. He's not a system. He's not a machine. He's in, she is in his hands. And that's okay, because he's the author of all things. And what he will do will be absolutely right. You can, it's guaranteed, he will do what is right. You'll never say, that's not fair. It's impossible, because it's God. But may this encounter with death teach you to number your own days and to ask those very questions of your own life. And we know this. We know that uh, a Hindu will not be saved through their Hinduism. We know that a Muslim will not be saved through Islam. We know that a good atheist cannot be saved by being an overall nice guy. We're not even saved by Christianity. We are saved by Jesus. And this means that all gods are idols. They are dead, and if we worship these idols, we become dead. And at the end of the day, there are five teachings of Jesus that will disturb people the most. Five teachings. One is sin. In our world today, we don't talk about sin. In fact, I think you could get in trouble if you talked about sin today. You don't talk about hell. We don't talk about Jesus' claim to divinity, his miracles, but the one thing that always will trip people up is that Jesus is the way to eternal life. And it's that fifth truth that is a scandal on. It's a, it, it causes us to stumble. And so, our challenge and our invitation tonight is this. We need to work with what has been revealed work with what we know to be true. There are a lot of mysteries to our faith. But what is clear is this, is Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and our lives will only work the way they're supposed to work. They'll only flourish when they're aligned to him. And I think that's how we need to speak to others and how we live our lives. Because that, this is what we know for sure. Our conversation tonight about inclusivist view or a restrictivist view, I think it's, it's a helpful exercise to think about implications of our faith. Because these are the questions. The questions we are dealing with tonight are questions that people are going to ask you. And so what happens, I find, is a lot of Christians, they don't even know how to begin to answer them. And so this exercise tonight is to think through the implications of what you believe to be true and to be able to respond. Does that make sense? Okay, um, let me close in prayer, and then I'll take a couple questions, how about? And if they're really hard, I'll just say, that's a great question for, la for the last week. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and you've been present with us all tonight. You're not a philosophy, you're not a worldview, you're not a religion but you are the author of life. And you know us and you love us and you have reconciled us to the Father 
through your atoning sacrifice on the cross. You've given us the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us a taste of the things of you. And so, Lord, help us to, to um, be bold in our faith, knowing that hope is only found in you. Lord, there's lots of questions we have about those who've never heard and you know, how much faith is required, and, 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 and we're thinking about those things. But we recognize at the end of the day, um, these are mysteries that, uh, that we, on this side, we, we, we may never know. But we're thankful that in you we have eternal life. And in you we know we will live forever and our names are written in the book of life. We take you at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.